You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Short psalm. Some of you are thinking, that means a short sermon. There are no guarantees. We had a good time yesterday. You know, we were in the city at the cathedral for Jimmy's ordination. If you're new this morning, uh, Jimmy was on staff here for seven years. Um, he got, he moved over here as a single man. He got married to Sarah. They had their, their little boy um, in our congregation. A lot happened over seven years. Um, and so it was kind of like, I don't know. Yesterday was the best of times and the worst of times because it was wonderful to see him come to the end of his training and finally kind of step out into his calling, uh, but it was also kind of like a definite closing of his time with us. And so a few of us were there yesterday, which was great, um, but not as many as there could have been because uh, even at the enormous cavernous St. Paul's Cathedral, they could only get, I don't know, 400 people in. So it wasn't what it should have been. My, at my ordination, the place was overflowing with people, and not just because I was getting ordained, like there were other people as well, and I mean, there were news crews, like it was a big deal, and yet yesterday, it was wonderful, but there was kind of, it was tainted, because we're living in the midst of this pandemic. And even though, as I said at the beginning, we're kind of getting used to some of these restrictions that are being placed on us, uh, we're never going to be just okay with them. A good example of this is the border closures uh, that kind of on and off constantly over the last 12 months in Australia. Uh, Seaver is back with us for the first time today. He should have been back with us, I don't know, weeks and weeks ago. He went to Sydney uh, for Christmas and then has been stuck there ever since. Um, if you grew up in Australia, this is weird to you. Maybe if you come from another country, as many of you do, maybe you're used to having to cross borders and have identification or maybe being prevented from crossing certain borders. Here, it's weird. Like, someone telling me I can't cross the Murray River is strange. Renee, as I said, is away this weekend. She uh, is going to my soon-to-be sister-in-law's bridal shower or whatever it's called. That was in Moama, which is literally just on the other side of the Murray. And just sorting that out was a hassle. We're not used to living under these conditions. We're not used to dealing with border security in this way. Well, this psalm this morning that we're going to look at deals with the most serious and forcefully enforced border security that there ever has been. Let me read Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, David says... Who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? What's he talking about here? So the holy mountain, let's go to that one first. The holy mountain, uh, we get a hint about what, what the holy mountain is right back at the beginning of the Bible. It features heavily throughout. But the first hint we have about there even being this this mountain which is holy, that is a mountain where God dwells, is way back in Genesis 2. It refers to the fact that out of Eden, a river flowed which watered the whole garden. 
So you just get a sense of the topography there, the geography of Eden, and you, you, you come to the conclusion that in order for a river to flow out of Eden and water the entire place, it kind of had to come from somewhere up high. That Eden itself was a mountain. And this is actually confirmed for us in Ezekiel, I think it's 28. It refers to Eden being this holy mountain, the place on which God dwelt. And then in, into this idyllic scene, you've got to have in your imagination, you've got, to, you've got to use your imagination to get back to creation before the fall of man, right? And in, in your imagination, if you go back to this, this idyllic scene, Adam and Eve, man and woman, made in God's, God's image, without blemish, dwelling with him in perfect harmony, Right? The rhythm of God is just pulsing through the place. And on this holy mountain, Adam and Eve dwell with God in perfect unity, perfect community. That's what the holy mountain of God is like. But as most of you know, one chapter later, that picture, that picture-perfect harmony is fractured. It's broken. It falls. This is what it says in Genesis 3, verse 23 to 24. In response to the rebellion, the Lord God sent him, that is Adam, away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the Tree of Life. He puts in place border restrictions, right? He kicks out the man and the woman made in his image, made to live with him in perfect unity and community. He kicks them out of that place of harmony. He banishes them from the holy mountain. And after banishing him, he sets up his cherubim, right? These are angels. Forget the image you have of cherubs, like from cartoons, fat little babies with bow and arrow. That is not what, they're not the ones that God is sending to guard the holy mountain. These are angels you don't want to mess with. Flaming, whirling swords. The way is barred from that point onward. No one can enter into that dwelling place of God. No one can enter onto that holy mountain. No one can dwell with God. The interesting thing is that um, Eden literally means delight. Think about what Eden was like. It was just delightful, literally. Mount Delight. And later in Israel's history, the holy mountain, the dwelling place of God, would be known as Mount Zion. Zion sound, it kind of sounds impressive. I could see myself naming my next boy Zion, right? It would go well with Judah. right? It sounds impressive, but it actually means drought. Mount Drought. That's what sin does. 
right? That's what human rebellion does. It takes what is delightful and turns it into drought. And so the holy mountain of God, Mount Zion, it's still beautiful, it's still impressive, it still in some sense embodies the glory of God. God condescends to the point where even he will dwell on Mount Drought, but it's not the same as Eden. The glory has faded. So as David writes this psalm, he has in mind this holy mountain, this glorious Edom. And David himself, when he was king, knowing that this was true and wanting to move his people back to that kind of unity and community with God, he chose to set up the tabernacle, that is the tent that he speaks of here, the tent in which the people would worship God, right? This is the the foreshadowing of the temple that was yet to come. In that tent where the very presence of God would dwell in the Ark of the Covenant, he chose Mount Zion as the place to have the tabernacle, the tent of God. Remember, this all happens in 2 Samuel 6. It was a great chapter of the Bible. It's what I referred to when we came back for our first public service right before Christmas. And I talked about the fact that as they were moving the Ark of the Covenant towards Mount Zion, where they would set up this tabernacle, this tent, they got six steps carrying the ark before they put it down and had a worship service because they were so overwhelmed with gratitude to God for not killing them, for even being near his presence. Such is his glory and his holiness. And so it's on Mount Zion that David sets up this tent And the tent that he's referring to here in the first verse, that tabernacle, the foreshadowing of the temple, right? that tent was meant to be like a copy of Eden. It was meant to be a little handmade copy of Mount Delight. In fact, even on the tent itself, like woven into the fabric of the tent were pictures of Eden. And then inside the tent, right in the very center, you had the, the, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. This was the place where the Ark of the Covenant would dwell, where God himself, the glory of God would be manifest, just as it was in some sense in Eden. And between the people... And the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, between them and it, there was this curtain. It was a curtain that signified the barrier, the border between people and God. And even on the curtain itself, woven into the curtain, were pictures of cherubim and flaming swords. So it's a copy. It's a little copy. It's a little Lego copy, right, of the real thing. And whether it was the flaming swords and cherubim or the the curtain that copied it, but the, the message was very clear. It was God's keep out sign. You must not 
cross. You cannot cross. No one can dwell with God. Which is exactly what David says here. Remember what's the question? Verse 1, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? This, his question is, who can live with God? Who can dwell in God's presence? This is the, the question that the Bible seeks to answer from Genesis to Revelation, by the way. This is one way of reading the whole Bible is to have this question in mind. Who can live with God? That's what every, right from Genesis 3, it's like the second page of your Bible. From then on, that's the question that people are asking. How can we get back to Eden? How can we dwell with God? And the answer is crushing. The answer is very, very bad news for every single person in this room from the most innocent newborn to the eldest among us. This is the answer. Let's read one and, verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. It says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? Answer, the one who lives blamelessly. Hmm. What does it mean? To live blamelessly means you're innocent. You've never done anything wrong. The one who lives perfectly. Hmm. How you doing? The one who lives blamelessly, he goes on, practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost. Ugh. Like you can probably, you can probably twist some of this in your favor. But everyone in this room is a liar, and the main reason we lie is because of the cost. Who keeps his word whatever the cost. The reason I lie is because it's too costly to tell the truth. Who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things will never be shaken, the one who does these things can dwell with God. Who can dwell with God? Who can live in your tent? Who can dwell or live on your holy mountain? The one who's perfect. It's the perfect man or woman who can do these things. Who is the perfect man or woman? That's a much easier question to answer. Just watch the news for like five consecutive seconds. I can't do it more than that. It's too depressing. 
I've got to switch in and out of social media constantly because my capacity to even imbibe any of it for any length of time is very minimal. It's too depressing. Either because all the images I see of you are perfect and so I feel completely, you know, despairing of myself. Or because the level of engagement is so low and so mean. The, the psalm before this one actually gives us the answer immediately. In Psalm 14, in, in verse 2 to 3, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race. So who does that include? All the people, all right? He looks down from heaven on all the people to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. But the fact is, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Dang. It's kind, of, it's kind of grating, right? Because even if you are a Christian, you've still grown up in a culture in which the kind of basic assumption is that everyone is basically good. There are some outliers like Hitler and, I don't know, child molesters, but apart from that, everyone's basically on, you know, on trajectory for living a good life. And then you read this, and according to God, no one. We're just doing a survey here of how many people on earth are doing good. Oh, there's none. Not even one. So it's said sometimes that in order to know that the gospel is good news, you first have to know the bad news. If you don't know the bad news, then there's nothing to contrast the good news with. And so all you have to do is look into your own human experience, see the brokenness and darkness and filth there, and then actually look outside of yourself and see it in everyone around you, even not just in the people, but in creation itself, pandemic. Earthquakes, bushfires, bad water, I don't know, you name it. And it's then when you see that the source of all those things is your own rebellion against God, reflected first of all, or at least echoed out from Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, continued on in an unbroken sequence to your behavior this morning. It's then that you get a sense of the bad news. And then, hallelujah, you can start to receive or at least conceive of the gospel as good news. Because the gospel tells us that there was one perfect man. The gospel tells us that there was one who fulfilled the requirements of Psalm 15. The gospel doesn't lift the border restrictions. It doesn't do away with the border closures, right? 
The gospel is not that, well, God used to be angry at people, but now he just loves everyone, so come in. The border closure is still in place. The dwelling place with God to this day is for perfect people. The first bit of good news that the gospel tells us is that there was one. His name was Jesus. He lived the Psalm 15 life. He lived the life that you and I could never live, a life without sin. Which in itself actually is not good news at all. Like, that doesn't help me. I'm glad that there was one who did it, but it does nothing for me. It actually just makes me feel worse. The fact that someone else can do something that you can't doesn't make you feel any better. The other day, India came to me with a jar of salsa. I don't know what kind of witchcraft they use to put those lids on. But I had India and Renee there watching as I feebly struggled with this lid. And the pressure was on, right, because I'm a man. And so as soon as someone asks me to do something that requires any level of skill or strength, it is on, right? And so I'm just sitting there going, come on, John. In addition to wanting nachos, uh, nachos I want to impress you. And so I'm still, like, I'm, uh, my, your whole life has been preparation for this. And I just couldn't do it. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. The fact that someone else gets the lid off doesn't help you. It does nothing for you. Being able to dip chips in salsa is small consolation for not being able to do what you desperately want to do. Now, imagine that not getting the lid off results in your condemnation, your eternal death. That's what the gospel tells us. It just reinforces the rest of the Bible. That's what the stakes are. If you can live a perfect life, come in. And if you can't, you're gone for good. So the fact that Jesus can do it doesn't help me. It doesn't make me... In fact, the fact that Jesus could do it only compounds my condemnation. So this is the good news. The good news is not just that Jesus did it, but that in doing it, he made a way for you to enter into God's presence. The gospel tells us that Jesus lived the life that we could never live, a life without sin, and then he died on the cross, a death for sin. The gospel tells us that in dying on the cross, Jesus exchanged his perfect life, what the Bible calls his righteousness. He exchanged that, giving it to you. And in exchange, he took on your filthiness. 
your sin. This is how 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it. We went through this in our recent series in 2 Corinthians. You remember it? For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. This is the greatest deal of all time. That on the cross, he who knew no sin, the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God, becomes sin. Right? He, he embodies the sin of the world. He absorbs it into himself. He goes from white to black. He goes from unblemished to broken. And it doesn't end there. The other part of the exchange is that he gives, freely gives, graciously and joyfully gives his perfect life to all who trust in him. Huh. That's why they call it good news. Christianity is not the message that you should be a good boy or a good girl. Christianity is the message is that, it, that you are not either one of those things and never will be and in fact cannot be. The gospel is the message that when you are your worst, God loved you and gave his son for you. That at the height of your rebellion as an enemy of God, Jesus dies in your place and gives you his perfection. Oh my God. If that's not good news, I just don't know what is. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness. That's perfection. The perfection of God. This act of Jesus on the cross is so potent, it's so powerful and all-sufficient that today, if you are trusting in his death on your behalf, you can read Psalm 15 and say, that's me. That's me. That perfect one, that's me. In spite of my wretchedness, in spite of the fact that I, this morning in the car park of church, I yelled at my kids and told my wife to get stuffed. Or whatever you did. I know what happens out there. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah in the car park. And then by the time you get in here, everyone's sweet. I know. <laughs> Despite that, in Christ, you can read Psalm 15 and say, that's me, because I'm in Christ. And in Christ, I've been given his righteousness. That's what Paul says again in 2 Corinthians. Remember, you have been hidden. Your life is hidden in Christ. If anyone goes looking for someone to condemn on the basis of their sin, they won't find you because you're hidden 
with Christ in God. You've been given his white robes. You stand justified. And there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ. So who can live with God? David, you're right. No one. Only the perfect one. Who can dwell on the holy mountain, the mountain of delight? Who can live with God on his mountain? No one. There's cherubim and whirling swords, flaming swords. Who can meet with God in his tent, even the copy of the real thing? No one. The curtain is there for a reason. The curtain is thick and high, and it separates everyone from God's presence. Let me just finish by reading to you what it says about what happened when he who knew no sin became sin for us. In Matthew chapter 27, this is what it says. About three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You know the answer to that, right? It's because he's become sin. And God can't dwell with sin. He has become sin. Every one of us have had our sin emptied onto him, into him. He's become sin. And God has abandoned him, rightly so. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit, or he died. Suddenly, at that moment, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Ever wonder why? It was God's great picture of what had been achieved in Jesus' death. The curtain is torn in two. The border restrictions have been lifted. Everyone who is in Christ may enter into the dwelling place of God. If you're here this morning and you love the gospel and you trust it, you believe that Jesus died in your place and for your sin, having lived the perfect life that you could never live, then in Christ you may enter the dwelling place of God, now and forever. That's good news. Let me praise God for it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you this morning for sharing with us the bad news. The bad news of Psalm 15. 
that psalm that exposes us, shows us for who we really are. People masquerading as good people who are actually nothing more than sinners. You could have left us in that state, expelled from your presence, facing condemnation. And instead, you love the world in this way. You sent your one and only Son so that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal dwelling with you. Thank you. Father, for those of us this morning who have just grown hard and cold to the good news, please soften our hearts, warm them with that strange warming that comes when your spirit fills us again. When we, like for the first time, experience your love and your grace. And for those dear friends who are here this morning who don't yet know that love, who haven't yet experienced the forgiveness of sins and the adoption into your family, I pray that they would experience it even now by your spirit. Enter into their hearts. Help them to put their trust in you. Lord Jesus, we honour you. You have the name that is above every name, King of kings and Lord of lords. For the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame. You have nailed to it all of our sin, all of our brokenness and our rebellion. And you rose again triumphant, leading the way before us to our eternal dwelling. We thank you. We praise you. We honour you. And we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.